0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm guest host Rick Samprin. So far, women at the Tokyo Games have won all of Team Canada's medals. Why is it important for this success to translate into opportunities post-Olympics? In a new report, the parliamentary budget officer forecasts that the provincial and municipal governments will take more than 74 years to balance the budget. Jay Goldberg, Ontario director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, joins us with the details. And fully vaccinated Canadians have been left out of plans to ease quarantine restrictions for entry to England and Scotland. But fully vaxxed travelers from the U.S. and most of Europe have not. With Canada having some of the best numbers in the world, why are we excluded? The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. (laughs) Today on the Bill Kelly show on 900 CHML. The success of female Olympians for Canada in Tokyo has been just phenomenal. Team Canada's won 10 medals thus far at the Tokyo Games. All 10 of them have been won by a woman or a women's team. And this is day 6 of the 2-week long event, and the women have led the charge for Team Canada. Gold for swimmer Maggie McNeil and weightlifter Maud Chiron. Silver for the women's 4x100 meter freestyle relay team. The women's 3 meter synchronized springboard team. Silver for swimmer Kylie Moss. Bronze for swimmer Penny Alexiak. And Jessica Klimkate and Catherine Beauchemin uh, Pinard, both in judo. Canada's women's softball team winning a bronze. And last night, the latest one, the women's pair rowing team. And this domination, if you will, by female Olympians from this country also played out at the start of the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver, if you remember that. And the great Clara Hughes was asked about uh, why women were winning more medals than men at that time. And and her answer uh, was really interesting. She said, quote, it takes a lot more resources to be able to develop men to the level as women in many sports when you get a top 10 result as a male it's unbelievable it's out of this world i'm not saying it's easier to win as a female but in terms of depth it's different she also added that there are countries in this world that do not allow their females to even participate in sports let alone be supported should also mention That out of the 371 athletes that make up Team Canada at the Tokyo Games, which is the second highest total ever, 60% are female or identify as female. So uh, the women are not only comprising most of um, Canada's Olympic team, but they are winning medals, which is great to see. Joining us now to uh, touch on not only the success of these Olympians, but after these games are done, what does that success translate into and, uh, and does it at all? Alison Sandmeyer-Graves is the CEO of Canadian Women in Sport and joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Alison, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thanks. Maybe we'll start with this. What do you make of the success so far of Canada's female athletes in Tokyo?
1: Oh, it's just fantastic. I think they're giving all of us so much to cheer for, those who are, of course, taking home the medals. But also, you know, we have athletes out there who are really giving it their all and who are doing us all so proud. So It's wonderful overall, and I think it is particularly just a real celebration of women in sport.
0: Have you been most impressed with someone or something regarding to the game so far?
1: (laughs) Truthfully, just given the lead-up to this game, (laughs) I'm just impressed that they're all safe and not, you know, sick in their dorm rooms and that they have managed to train and to persevere through the mental hardships of the last year. And it it sort of seems like it's going on like it normally would. So I'm really just very excited for them all.
0: It's a great point. It's phenomenal to think that, you know, COVID, you know, the pandemic is still with us yet, you know, Tokyo is hosting a, a massive international event and I think a lot of us, especially when we're watching the events, we kind of lose sight of that because we're, we're engrossed in what's happening, you know, in the pool or on the field or whatever the case is.
1: Well, absolutely. And I think it, it's giving us all, I don't know, maybe a little break from it, it. I know the athletes and everybody there, they're having to go through daily tests and they're, they're really going through the gauntlet every day to make sure that they're staying safe and, and that uh, COVID doesn't sort of creep into Things, but otherwise, it's just been a wonderful event and it's been a lot of fun to watch.
0: Sports does provide uh, a, a great distraction from some of the heaviness of, uh, you know, what's happening around the world. And this is uh, no different, obviously. We're chatting with uh, Alison Sandmeyer-Graves, CEO of Canadian Women and Sports. And we're talking about the success of uh, the female athletes so far from Team Canada. All 10 medals have been won by Canadian female athletes. Do you think the men are feeling the heat a little bit more than usual?
1: <laughs> oh, that's hard to say. And I think that, you know, in celebrating the women, we don't want to necessarily make it a competition between the genders. Um, you know, in Rio, we saw that uh, the women did win most of the medals, and they and most of them came in the first week. So I assume that as the competition goes on, we'll see some medals from the Canadian men, and I, I certainly hope for that. Um but yeah, not, not a competition between the genders, but it is wonderful to see because we do know that on a year-round basis, there is a, still a huge gender gap in sport. Girls are participating far less than boys. They're dropping out at a higher rate than boys through those teen years. So to see women persevere through the, the barriers and then perform and succeed on the global stage is, is wonderful, and I think... Uh, you know, hopefully has some impacts that we can lean on throughout the rest of the year.
0: And that's a great take on, you know, what has happened because, you know, just going back to Clara Hughes' statement saying that, you know, the the depth of the field in, in certain men's events is a lot greater. And that kind of alludes to what you just mentioned in terms of, you know, certainly in the teenage years, a lot of, you know, girls and women are saying, you know what, I'm going to move on to other things, start my career, you know, whatever the case is, which still makes it incredibly unbelievable that they're achieving you know these kind of uh, medal counts
1: yeah i think clara's point is well taken and for and i agree you know globally canada is has a very equitable society relative to a lot of other places Mm -hmm. and that translates to sport as well um but for additional context i mean sport was his for long long history really for men by men and women and girls over the past number of decades have increasingly participated, increasingly succeeded uh, and contributed in the process. But it is still a male-dominated space. And the, the data proves that year over year. So, you know, girls have fewer opportunities in sport. Um, sport hasn't been designed specifically to meet their needs and interests. And they bump up against a lot of challenges in their efforts to participate Um, They themselves struggle with confidence and in their skills and in their body image we see. So all of this is what girls are telling us in the studies that we're doing. And unfortunately, COVID is making it worse. So when we think about what's happening on these podiums and in these pools and the fields and the the lakes and things over in Tokyo, um, realizing that the girls in our communities are talking about maybe not going back to sport after COVID, one in four are telling us that. Um, it really makes us realize that we need to translate the success at the Olympics into real attention on this in our own communities back in Canada.
0: Have you been able to dig down deep in why those girls are saying that post-COVID? They're going to say, you know what, sports uh, just isn't in my future and I'm not going to pursue it any longer?
1: Yeah, well, we did a study on this recently with our partners at the E Alliance and Jumpstart uh, Canadian Tire Jumpstart Charities, and we we were concerned that you know because girls going into the the pandemic were facing a lot of barriers that that we might see this effect, and of course women and girls have been disproportionately impacted by COVID across all areas of society. So girls are telling us that well, sorry, I should say before COVID girls drop out in their teen years, Uh, one in three, one in three girls drop out in that period, compared to one in 10 boys. So it tells us that there's a very unique gender dynamic going on there. Um, Through COVID, uh, girls really talked about the fact that their physical fitness has changed. They don't like the way their body feels. They're not liking the way their body looks so much. They found other things to do. Their friends have decided not to go back so that's making them wonder if they want to go back if their friends aren't going to be there anymore their family finances have have changed in a lot of cases and they might not be able to afford sport in the way that they used to so they're really still one they're kind of questioning is this still where I want to spend my downtime um, and for a lot of them they're thinking well I feel a lot more I don't I, I feel a lot more vulnerable going back in that space. If I don't have confidence in my skills, I don't have confidence in the way my body feels right now. And so it's a whole host of factors. The key is really we need to talk to them and find out what's going on so that we can support them through this.
0: Does a lack of – don't get me wrong, there's there's so many – amazing role models out there uh, from a female perspective. You know, Simone Biles this week, you know, really stepping forward in terms of not only her athletic career, but, you know, off the uh, gymnastic floor, so to speak, in terms of talking about her mental health. There's so many great women role models out there. But not having... Um, pro sports leagues, there's so many male role models out there, whether it's football, baseball, soccer, hockey, you name the sport. There's so many of them out there that maybe boys and guys will continue on with their sports because they're trying to emulate those guys or, uh, you know, just trying to pretend to be, you know, a pro hockey player, whatever the case is. Does that have any kind of impact in the decision-making process?
1: Role models definitely make a difference. And I think that the the broader – um, the story there is a lot of it is about the value and respect that's shown to women in sports. So you look into the, in the newspapers, it is a daily celebration of men in sports. So much attention being lavished on all the details, and celebrating the, the athletes. And really, it, it just gives such a message of this is valued, this is important, this is respected. But when 4% of media goes to women's sport, and that's in an Olympic year, we're getting a healthy dose of it right now, Um, that means that that women and girls just aren't getting those same messages. And in fact, they often get the opposite message, which is that it is not a place where girls and women belong, and their value is more in what they look like than what their bodies can do. And so uh, role models are really important for giving that message of like, hey, this is an awesome thing to do. I am powerful. I am strong. I'm fierce. And that's a good thing. <laughs> and so there's, uh, I think the Olympics give us that, um, you know, it's a shame that we don't get more of that year round. And I think that's where we're really calling on the media and sponsors to help put those women out on the screens, give them those pro opportunities so that Uh, all of us can benefit from it.
0: Our guest is Alison Sandmeyer-Graves, CEO of Canadian Women in Sports, joining us here on The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill this week. How can a successful performance at an Olympic Games, whether you're Jessica Klimkade in judo or Kylie Moss in the swimming pool or even uh, Canada's women's softball team, how can the success that they've achieved in Tokyo translate into opportunities once the games are done?
2: I
1: think there tends to be a bump in participation for any sport that has had a lot of success at the Olympics, fortunately. And that's a lot of sports that you just would never catch on, uh, on TV. You know, there's some really niche sports out there. And, it, and so the idea that kids can see uh, people of all different backgrounds and body shapes and interests finding something that they can be passionate about really, I think, gives a lot of inspiration to uh, the folks watching back home and, and piques their interest on, you know, what would it be like to try this or, you know, I'm going to keep going with that. Um, but I think there isn't, uh, you know, the trickle-down effect only works for so long and and so much. So I, I think it's really a matter of ensuring that there are opportunities in our local communities to play sports and particularly as we come back from covid The girls that we surveyed talked about what the absence of sport in their lives has has done. They're struggling with mental health. They're struggling with their physical health. They miss their friends. And it just reinforces how important sport is for all of us, but especially for kids. Um, And when we know that sport is where um, kids but girls learn leadership skills and build confidence and the resilience that will carry them through their lives, We know that this is something that we really need to not leave to chance. We need to be very deliberate about translating inspiration into kids moving their
0: bodies. How has the Simone Biles situation of this week affected things in terms of girls getting into sports? Do they see that story and ingest that story and say, you know, I I want to put my body through that? I want to put my mind through that kind of scenario?
1: Uh, I've been really contemplating uh, what all of that meant uh, with her choosing to opt out. And that was, you know, the story of her saying it's about my mental health was also a story about her saying, no, it's my physical health. I can't launch myself into the air if I am not confident that I'm going to land safely mm-hmm. because my just I'm just not kind of in the right place right now. And we know that girls... Um, girls often feel like they need to be perfect. And sometimes that leads them to not try unless they feel like they can be perfect and they need to feel like they can be supported in that. But it can also mean that they really are trying to please people. And uh, you can please people to your own detriment. And I think that Simone really setting some boundaries for herself, trusting herself and being confident that Uh, She was doing the right thing for herself and having a support system around her who listened to her, who respected her choice and supported it, um, I think hopefully (laughs) gives girls permission to do the same for themselves.
0: Yeah, I, I, too, am hoping that there is a good uh, ending or a happy ending to this story, and it encourages more girls to get involved, to say, hey, I don't have to be perfect, but I can still have fun and enjoy myself, and uh, who knows, it might translate into some, someday some success at the Olympic Games. Allison Sandmeyer-Graves, thank you very much for the time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Allison is the CEO of Canadian Women and Sports. You can, hey, just Google it. They have a great uh, website and a great entity online. You can get a whole host of information. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation says Ontario governments will take more than 74 years to balance the budget. 74 years. When looked at together, the parliamentary budget officer says provincial and municipal finances show that we're going to be running deficits until at least 2095. That doesn't Mm -hmm. sound good, does it? The CTF says, "Quote: For the sake of the next generation, Ontario governments need to get their financial houses in order to find a way to escape a decades-long debt spiral. We are spiraling." Jay Goldberg is the interim Ontario director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and joins us now. Jay, good morning. Good morning. Hey, Jay, how are
2: you? Doing well, how are
0: you? Not too bad. Well, that statement I just read from uh, your organization is fairly worrisome.
2: Yeah, well, the numbers are fairly worrisome. Uh, The PBO, Parliamentary Budget Officer, has put out numbers looking at the uh, state of the province's finances and the state of municipal finances. Uh, And uh, in Canada, under the Constitution, the uh, provincial governments are responsible for municipal spending, and if they run deficits and somehow their debt gets out of control, uh, it's the province that ends up having to foot the bill. Uh, So essentially, even though the Ford government has said they're going to try to balance the budget within the next 10 years, what we see is that cities across the province, including Toronto, which is running a $1 billion deficit this year, uh, have such bad finances that if you combine the two levels of government, there's not going to be a balanced budget till 2095, and that's actually just the end of the study. That's not even the year we're going to balance the budget. They just stopped looking after that year. They
0: gave up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought the Ford government, as you mentioned, was promising to balance the books by 2030 or thereabouts. I guess that was just you know a, a political stance or, or or a rubber stamp that 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 you know that was a goal that they were setting.
2: So that's certainly a goal that they've set. The PBO is saying they won't balance the budget by then. It's quite possible the provincial government will manage to balance the budget in 10 or 15 years. But what we're seeing is such bad numbers out of Ontario's 444 municipalities that there's so much debt at the municipal level that that will outweigh any kind of balanced budget at Queen's Park.
0: So I thought that municipal governments are not allowed under legislation to run a deficit. Is that correct? So
2: it's interesting. Municipalities are not allowed to run uh, what's called an operational deficit. So they can't uh, run the deficit when it comes to day-to-day spending. But they can borrow money to fund infrastructure and capital projects. So, for example, the city of Toronto has balanced its operational budget this year But they're borrowing over a billion dollars to finance infrastructure projects. So even though operationally they're not running a deficit, the city's debt is growing faster and faster. And actually Toronto alone has a debt right now of $7 billion.
0: That's a lot of money.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: (laughs) We're chatting with Jay Goldberg, interim Ontario director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, which says that Ontario governments will take more than 74 years to balance the budget we know that downloading has been a thing. Federal and provincial governments have been downloading on municipalities for a number of years now. That obviously has a great impact on their budgets. How can a city operate its day-to-day business under that operational budget while making those capital improvements when you know these upper-level governments have municipalities basically in handcuffs?
2: Well, certainly the upper level governments traditionally, uh, you know, particularly in the 1990s, did engage in some downloading. We haven't seen very much uh, downloading in recent years. Uh, what's more concerning uh, is that municipal uh, spending seems to be going up year after year, uh, well over the rate of inflation, without the uh, cities across the province taking more responsibility. Uh, so certainly there has been some downloading, but most of that downloading occurred in the nineties. There hasn't been all that much downloading lately, uh, and obviously our finances were in better shape before the pandemic. So I, I think a lot of the, the a lot of the problem lies with uh, uh, runaway spending at the municipal level.
0: So what that what would that be categorized as a, a runaway spending? Is there a, a project or a, uh, an example that you can point to that would be under that kind of runaway spending heading?
2: Well, I'll give you an example. Mayor Tory in the city of Toronto uh, is attempting to build a $4 billion rail deck park above the rail tracks uh, down near Union Station. Now, uh, legally, he has been told a couple of months ago that that may not be possible because private groups... Uh, control uh, the land uh, and don't want to give it away or sell it but uh, Mayor Tory he's trying to build a four billion dollar park downtown when the city of Toronto is already running a billion dollar a year annual deficit so there's certainly a lot of examples uh, of where things need to improve and certainly there could be some more streamlining in terms of figuring out who should be responsible for what there's all kinds of areas uh, of government policy, whether it's social assistance or social housing, where municipalities pay part of the bill, provinces pay part of the bill, and no one really takes full responsibility for it. I, I think a better approach would be to figure out exactly, uh, you know, you if municipalities say, okay, we'll be responsible uh, for social welfare, the province should be responsible for paying uh, social assistance, then that's a way to sort of sort things out. But the way we have it now with, you know, every level of government funding part of something, no one seems to have ownership and so no one is trying to make the system more efficient.
0: It's a good way of putting it. Jay Goldberg is our guest. He's the interim Ontario director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick Infrabil, we're chatting about the parliamentary budget officer saying that provincial and municipal finances in Ontario show that we're going to be running deficits until at least 2095. Jay, at the end of the day, whether the provincial or federal government is running a deficit, all that seems to be. Uh, true is that the taxpayer, you and I, are stuck with the bill at the end of the day.
2: That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, we're seeing the consequences of it even now. The provincial government here in Ontario uh, is spending $13 billion this year on uh, interest payments, on debt we've already accumulated. We know that going forward, those numbers are going to go up exponentially. And for $13 billion, you could build 12 new hospitals here in the province of Ontario. So it's really a matter of, uh, you know, contrast and priorities. And so what we're saying uh, is that if we're already spending $13 billion a year on debt interest, we don't want that to get even further to 20 or 25. Uh, And as it goes up, we'll have less money to spend on other things. So that's a big thing to think about as well.
0: How has the pandemic escalated the price tag? Well, the pandemic has
2: certainly had an impact, uh, particularly uh, with provincial and federal government. Uh, the federal government is nowhere near a balanced budget. They're not looking at a balanced budget till 2070, according to the same PBO reports. Um, but the Ford government, certainly they spent money during the pandemic, but I think we have to be uh, careful in distinguishing. I mean, so the provincial government certainly had more spending to do with health care, to do with long-term care, uh, and other issues during the pandemic. Uh, but most of that spending, uh, perhaps not long-term care, but a lot of the spending that the government had to engage in, whether it was to support businesses uh, or to ensure that people were still getting their paychecks, those programs really should be lasting uh, until the end of COVID, which is hopefully, uh, you know, in the next few months. And so uh, governments really have to focus on uh, changing the footing that they're on. Obviously, we had a very unique circumstance in the past uh, Year and a half. But I think what the danger is, is that governments use that as an excuse to permanently increase spending all across the board. And that's something we have to be concerned about.
0: We're also going to be entering, and some might say we're in that right now, the post pandemic recovery stage. Um, we also know that a federal election is going to be on the way in a matter of, who knows, weeks or months. A provincial election in Ontario is coming next summer, and we know during election time when these party leaders are campaigning that they are promising billions and billions of dollars in new spending and new initiatives, uh, and that only adds to you know the, the tax bill.
2: Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, in this country, we see so many examples. Uh, you know, we've seen Prime Minister Trudeau has been flying all around the country making billions of dollars worth of announcements uh, ahead of the election, uh, making childcare agreements with a whole bunch of provinces. And the federal government is looking at a deficit of well over $300 billion. Uh, so, you know, when the state of the finances are so bad, this is not the time, particularly now, to be running around the country spending billions of dollars a day. But unfortunately, it seems as if particularly the federal government has taken the view that whatever the deficit is, it doesn't really matter. Someone will have to deal with it down the line it probably won't be them, and, and they seem to have no fiscal anchor at all.
0: For governments to change course and to tackle these deficits, p- you know, pick away at these uh, budget deficits, um, what would be the most impactful first move they should make?
2: Well, I would say the most impactful first move is, is to look at uh, the costs of government uh, employees and, and what that's uh, costing. So, for example, here in the province of Ontario, Uh, About half of the budget, about 50% of the budget, uh, is just paying the salaries of those who work uh, for the government. And so what the Ford government has done here in Ontario is put a 1% salary increase cap uh, in the public sector. And that's actually having a significant impact in terms of improving our financial numbers. So I think the best thing the Ford government could do would be to leave that in place or even perhaps freeze uh, salaries for the next several years. Because if uh, salaries are making up half of the budget, uh, then saving some money in terms of, uh, you know, camping down on those uh, potential increases could actually go a long way to solving the problems.
0: Every public sector worker has just punched their radio right now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, unfortunately, uh, the the reality is we've seen the numbers. Uh, Those in the uh, government sector, the public sector, on average, are paid 10% more than those in the private sector. Uh, So I think the Ford government reasonably decided that, uh, you know, we should cap uh, wage increases, with some exceptions, to 1%, uh, in order to try to get costs under control. So I would say maintaining that uh, is the easiest uh, way, at least from the government's perspective, of trying to bring down the deficit.
0: Can you envision one of the other two political parties saying, we're going to do the reverse?
2: uh absolutely i i could for sure see uh, a situation the opposition parties have both indicated that they're against the one percent cap so not only would they not freeze uh, salaries but it certainly looks like they would uh, increase them look we saw under the wind government for example that there were very few efforts to contain costs when it came to salaries and we have one quarter of teachers in this province now making over a hundred thousand dollars And so that's the consequence of years of uh, not being willing to try to uh, restrain the uh, wages of public sector workers.
0: Jay, really appreciate the time and the insight today. Thanks uh, for joining us. Thank you. Jay Goldberg is interim Ontario director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, shining a light on the uh, massive budget deficits we have in this province. When you collectively look at the provincial and municipal financial picture, uh, we're going to be running deficits, according to the Parliamentary Budget Officer, until at least 2095. And as according to Jay, that's when their study, or that's when the focus kind of ended. So really, into the next century, uh, the budget deficits will still be an issue. That's that's a long time, and and really, we could probably say forever. I mean, in our lifetimes, we'll never have a balanced budget. You might say it's balanced, but from a municipal level. Yeah, those costs are continuing to go up because of downloading and capital costs and all that other stuff. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very interesting story out of the UK. Fully vaccinated Canadian travelers have been left out of plans to ease quarantine restrictions for entry in places like England and Scotland. So the UK yesterday announced that travelers who are fully vaccinated in the United States or Europe will not have to quarantine upon arrival. And that change is set to take effect August the 2nd. The English and Scottish governments didn't provide a reason why Canada was not included in these new quarantine uh, exceptions, but there was a statement that was issued by the UK Department for Transport, which reads, quote, We're taking a phased approach to restarting international travel while protecting public health. We want to welcome all international visitors back to the UK and are working to extend our approach to vaccinated passengers from important markets and holiday destinations. Now, we should mention that countries involved in the exceptions include EU member states, European Union states, apart from France, members of the European Free Trade Agreement, and the microstate countries of Andorra, Monaco, and Vatican City. Also means that Canadians landing in England or Scotland have to quarantine at home or in the place that they're staying for 10 days and take a COVID-19 test after day eight. And should also mention that 57% of Canadians age 12 and older and 57% of Americans age 12 and older have received two doses of a COVID-19 vaccine. So it's a bit of a head scratcher or is it? Thomas Tenkate is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Ryerson University and joins us now. Mr. Tenkate, how are you today? I'm um, very well, thanks, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us. What do you make of this development?
3: Yeah, it, it, as you said, it's a bit of a strange one from the perspective, if, if it's purely based on public health and public health risk, I don't think you can, you know, the, the decision doesn't stack up. But if it's more of a political decision, and, and based on who the uh, you know your main travel audience is, then then it then it makes sense. But but like from my perspective, as a public health person, uh, I, I don't see that uh, it, you know it stacks up from that perspective.
0: From the public health perspective, do you think Canada's acceptance of mixing and matching COVID nineteen vaccines, including the AstraZeneca vaccine, is that playing a part in this decision? Do you think? <laughs>
3: well yeah, definitely you know what we're seeing around the world is that uh you know because each different countries have had different approaches and have used different vaccines and then and then as you said have also mixed and matched then it it's complicating uh things for from a travel perspective because each country is saying we want you to meet our requirements and uh we don't care if you know you meet your own country's requirements so so this is something where more broadly, I think uh, you know we'll have to come to some sort of international consensus on on what, appro- what is appropriate, and uh, you know I, I don't think that uh, you know at the moment there, there is that consensus. But, but but you know I don't see why it, why you know one you know, people from one country should be uh, impacted because of the you know the, the decision of that country to go a certain use certain vaccines in a certain way.
0: I found the second part of the Department of Transport statements uh, interesting. It says it's working to extend our approach to vaccinated passengers from important markets and holiday destinations. Canadian travelers made about 874,000 visits to the UK in 2019. So we're talking pre-pandemic. American travelers made nearly four and a half million visits. So to me, it sounds like this is all about, not all about, but mostly about tourism dollars and not public health. What do you think?
3: Yeah, like like when I sort of read uh, the various uh, stories about that, that's that was my impression. It was really about you know opening up the markets to the to the uh, to the countries that were, were the most inbound travellers for, for the UK uh, versus you know whether or not those uh, people you know travellers from those markets were presenting more of a risk uh, or not to to the uh, to the UK public.
0: We're chatting with Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Ryerson University here on the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill. Uh, I want to shift over to what's happening in Alberta for a second because starting today that province is no longer going to require mandatory quarantine for close contacts of positive COVID-19 cases. It's also ending asymptomatic testing. And by August 16th, people who test positive in Alberta will not be mandated to isolate. It'll be urged upon them or recommended that they do so, but it won't be mandated. What do you, what do you think about this?
3: Yeah, it, it is a like definitely uh, Alberta seems to be going out, out ahead of the other provinces in regard to, Really trying to get back to normal as quickly as possible. My, you know, my sense is that we, you know, we're at a point uh, where, from from the, the the cases that we're seeing, the uh, Alberta and BC are the two provinces what are seeing a you know a, a, an uptick in cases. The other provinces, say Ontario, is still bouncing around a little bit, but is still broadly flat. But uh, you know, in some ways. You know those, those sorts of decisions that you're describing. Uh, all they will do, is from my perspective, is fuel additional cases that they they wouldn't have had if they'd kept some of those restrictions in place. So, so and considering that their, their case numbers seem to be going up already, it, it's just a recipe for you know just uh, driving more cases uh, in in that in that province.
0: Adding to that uh, expected driving of cases, and I agree with you on that, is the Canada-U.S. border is going to open August 9th, uh, at least to fully vaccinated American uh, visitors. Those who go into Alberta, you know, no no isolation, uh, no asymptomatic testing. Um, are, are we on the cusp of a new wave, at least in that province, or or a resurgence in, uh, you know, in a, an exceptional amount of cases in that province?
3: Mm well well definitely um, you know when you you know from a from a travel perspective you've got to look at the what's the risk to the traveler themselves but what's also the risk to the community that the traveler is going into mm-hmm. and and i think that uh if you if you think about the risk to the community uh you know when whenever you've got an influx of uh people coming in who potentially could be infected then that's you know increasing the risk to to that community so so from that from that logic then you would think well you could be uh could be definitely looking at uh, additional cases uh in the community that are that come from trend you know from infection transmitted by by those uh, by those travellers.
0: If anything, and I know the clinical trials for a vaccine for those kids between the ages of five and eleven are, are still ongoing. But with you know international travel being, uh, in this case uh, from the UK, uh, encouraged, uh, you know they they want uh, those tourism dollars uh, to come in from abroad. But it'll be interesting to see if there's an increase in cases and that spread is being pointed to those who are you know under 12 and of course aren't vaccinated to see how those, how how fast those clinical trials will be sped up or not
3: mm. yeah de- def- definitely you know uh the the under 12s are really the, the 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 next group that we really need to try and address in regard to uh having a vac you know having vaccine that's approved for them because uh you know uh, for other you know other other uh uh, communicable diseases we we you know we have uh vaccines that are are approved for you know for babies and you know uh a range of you know children up to 12 so so i think uh you know it it would be you know in overall to try and prevent the spread of uh the of the covid virus we really need to be trying to uh spread the the vaccination to to the whole population and not to just over 12 so so definitely that those these uh, clinical trials for for under 12s are, are really important uh, as a as one of the you know layers in our, in our approach to trying to, to get it trying to control and address the uh, the pandemic. What we what you know the travel is uh, just illustrating that this is a global it is a global issue and that uh, you know if one country doesn't what happens in one country can affect another country.
0: Well said, and we're uh, awaiting results. Uh, We're being told of that uh, clinical trial for the vaccine for those between the ages of 5 and 11 sometime this fall. Hopefully that uh, arrives on time and we get a a good analysis of those numbers. Uh, Thomas, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us.
3: Uh, thank you. Thanks for thanks for the time and have a great day.
0: You too. Thomas Kate is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Ryerson University. Joining us here on The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton, talking about fully vaccinated Canadian travellers really being left out of plans to ease quarantine restrictions for entry in England and Scotland. If you're a fully vaccinated American, or you are fully vaccinated in another European country apart from France, um, and I guess the, you know, the, the the Brits are looking at the caseload in France and saying, you know what, we'll hold off for now. But if you're fully vaccinated in the U.S. and in most European countries, uh, yeah, you're being allowed, encouraged to go to the U.K. because you won't have to quarantine. Those new quarantine exceptions or rules will take effect next week, August the 2nd. And... I understand the tourism dollars, and I know the overwhelming number points to many more Americans go to the UK than Canadians. The fact of the matter is that Canadians will still be going there and are still fully vaccinated, and are still going to be spending their money in the UK. So, if it's not a public health issue and a tourism issue, you know the 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 both sides, you know, U.S. and Canada and the other pre- European nations are playing with the same um same deck if you will and certainly you know being a member of the commonwealth too obviously doesn't hold any weight in this regard i think it boils down to the mixing and matching of COVID 19 vaccines we know in canada that we were encouraged i'm one of them i i've I've got a mixed vaccine in my system right now we have uh, oxford astrazeneca um you know cooperating with pfizer and they're you know keeping me safe but i think that's also a factor You know, countries like England and Scotland, other ones around the world are thinking, I don't know if this individual or these people who have these mixed and max vaccines, if they're fully protected. Is it a true, fully double-dosed individual? And, you know, Canada is probably going to say the same thing from, uh, quote-unquote, fully vaccinated individuals from Russia or from China. You know, is the data behind those Vaccines in those countries acceptable to public health Canada. And I think the U.K. is kind of looking at that mixing and matching scenario and saying we're not quite sure. Let's hold off for now, at least in terms of quarantine. I mean, you can still travel there. And uh, the federal government saying we're still not recommending global travel. But, yes, you can still travel to the U.K. You will just have to quarantine for that specific time and then get tested after day eight at least 10 days in isolation, and getting a test after day eight. So if you're traveling to the UK, 10 days of however long your trip is going to be is going to be in quarantine. That's going to prevent a lot of people from going over, certainly. Hey, unless you've got boatloads of cash or you have family members there and you can travel for an extended period of time, maybe you're in retirement or whatever the case is, you've won the lottery, you can spend a little more time there. But yeah, still a head-scratcher in my mind.